it's okay with you. I'm going to start out sitting down today when there's less people. I just feel more comfortable when I do it, but usually I won't do it if there's a good amount of folks here and the back row can't see me. This is totally great. Uh, keep it warm. Um, so I had two highlights this week. One of them was uh, going to Church at the Well Everett. If you don't know, in this last quarter, we took 1% of everything that has ever been given in the history of our church and gave, and gave it as an offering to Church at the Well Everett, which is a new church in the next neighborhood over that's being started. And this week, kind of as a leap of faith, they had something called Soccer Nights. They just kind of opened up. They, they got permission from the city to use the Everett football field, the stadium. And they had a soccer camp for kids from kindergarten up through, I think, eighth grade. And I asked Joe, uh, Joe uh, Polson's the guy starting it, the church, and I said, how do you think it's going to go? A couple months ago, he said, I don't know. I don't know if any kids are going to sign up or not. And they opened it up online, and they had 160 kids sign up the first day. And uh, he was like, okay, we've got to shut down the kindergarten. Like, they just progressively shut down the grades until they ended up with, like, 200 kids at it. Well, soccer nights was this week for them. And so I got to go and volunteer several of the nights. The low moment of soccer nights was, by the way, on the first night for me. They're, they've got to open, they're going to open the football gate, and all the kids are going to run in. They're going to video, and it's going to be awesome. But nobody was actually opening the gate. And so I could kind of see that there was an emergency that was about to happen. And so, you know, being like just this old, like I'm just turning into an old man really fast. Like I just said, I'm going to run up there and get ahead of these kids. And I'm going to open this gate and get out of the way. And in my mind, I was faster at opening the gate and getting out of the way than I was in reality. Because... A couple of the kids, it looked like the it looked like the Tour de France, like where the kids like where the bike people like pile up, like a couple of kids. I felt somebody, I felt somebody hit my heel as I'm opening the gate, and like and you look and like I look back, I'm I'm, I'm like mission accomplished. I look back, and there's these kids laying, and other kids are like running onto the field past these kids. No kids were injured in the opening of the gate. Let mind you, but uh, it was a low moment. Like they even videoed it, and Joe sent me the video that he was going to post online. I was like, yeah, I look really cool tripping those kids. Like, can't get out of their way fast enough. And he cropped the video, thankfully, so you couldn't see me wiping out the kids. Um, the, another high moment for me this week, though, was, I don't know how many of you will know Mallory Sarno, but Mallory was part of Christ Church. Like, she started coming early on, and just a few people will even still remember Mallory at this point. Uh, she hadn't been as much in a while because her mom's had uh, cancer for the last a year plus. And really, once she found out her mom had cancer, she kind of became one of the primary caregivers in their home for her. And, and her mom lost her battle with cancer this week. And we um, had her funeral on Friday, had the wake on Thursday night. And it was just a, I've never been to a wake in New England. It's a little different than where I've grown up. I've never been to a funeral in New England. It's a little different. And so for those who knew about me doing that, thanks for praying for me on that. It went great. But the high, the high moment for me in all of it was uh, at the wake, watching Carla and Scott and Baskin come in. And, um, and Baskin told me, uh, Carla and, and Scott and Baskin all kind of came in, and they were just there for over an hour toward the end of the time. And, and Carla was in community group probably less than a dozen times with Mallory, but has stayed in touch and just encouraged her over the last couple of years, even as her mom's had cancer. And uh, I guess the Lord kind of put Mallory on your heart this week even, and you reached out. Yeah. And so Carla found out her mom passed away and went. And, uh, and somebody told me they were, uh, they just said, man, I just wept when they told me, I just wept when they saw you walk through the door. Like just caring for somebody who you barely knew. It was such a powerful witness of what we're to do as the body of Christ. Like it's easy to come to church when everybody's here and we're singing and church is awesome and whatever. It's a different thing when we have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with a brother or sister. And so I, that was a highlight for me and really was a highlight of our time in New England, seeing a Christian care for another Christian at a tough time. So thank you. I'm always proud to be your guys' pastor. I tell you that. But in moments like that, it just amps up even more. I want to read you a testimony from a guy named Suresh. Uh, I'm going to butcher his last name, but I believe it's like Buddha Pithri. Um, it's an Indian guy or a, Nep a Nepalese guy. And this is, um, this is his testimony uh, about life in Nepal, uh, which, like India, uh, still has the caste system. 
Um, I, I know that most of you know about the caste system, but in case somebody's listening who doesn't know about the caste system, essentially you're born into a class in Indian society and you don't rise above it. And if you ever look at a triangle of the Indian and Nepalese caste system, the, you know, you've got the Brahmin at the top, they're the elites, the only thing higher than a Brahmin on an Indian caste system or a Nepalese caste system is literally the gods. Like, that's the only thing higher than a Brahmin. And you get the, tri- the, the triangle, the pyramid of the caste system, and at the bottom of, but actually below the pyramid, literally, not even on the pyramid, some of them, if you look it up, you don't even see it, but below it is a group called the Delete. The Delete are the uh, untouchables, and uh, this gentleman, this brother in Christ, Suresh, has written this story. He says, I was born into a destitute Delete family in the Gorkha district of Nepal in 1979. A Delete is known as an Ahut, an untouchable, a term invented to humiliate the downtrodden. Though the Nepal government has recently declared caste-based discrimination a crime, the Delete community still strives for dignity. Now, when I was growing up, children from the higher caste were told not to befriend delites like me. If they happened to play with us, they had to be sprinkled with gold-touched water to purify them from our delete defilement. I had to bow down to Hindu gods and goddesses from outside the temples where non-delites worshipped freely. In restaurants, I had to wash my own plates because no one would dare touch uh, would dare wash a delete's dishes. Even dogs are allowed to enter the houses of the upper caste, but not delete's. We are treated as subhuman. In the summer of 99, I had a breakthrough at the Monkey Temple in Kathmandu. I met a Biola University the- theology student on a mission trip. We walked the temple steps for hours, talking about the differences between grace-based Christianity and karma and caste-based Hinduism. At last, a truly humanizing way to see my identity. That night, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I found dignity in the eyes of my Creator, who didn't see me as untouchable, but reached down to love me, embrace me as His Son, and offer me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 1.3 says. Jesus welcomes us, regardless of our social status or religious performance. He goes on, he says, I wish I could say my last 20 years as a Christian have ended my experience of caste-based discrimination. My dream of being treated with dignity as an image bearer of God is still a far cry in Nepali society. I live in a small flat in Kathmandu with my wife and children where we would be swiftly evicted if our landlords discovered that we are delete. We train our children to hide their caste membership. What's truly scandalous, and this is why I wanted to read this testimony to to you today, is that Nepali churches are no different. Many churches ask attendees to identify their caste. When they find out where our deletes, attitudes change dramatically. We hear propaganda, even within the church, that people of lower caste have lower intellectual ability. It makes no difference that I recently earned my master's degree in theology and plan to embark on PhD studies to better serve the church. It only matters that you are untouchable, which disqualifies you from church leadership. As a result, Dalits are compelled to either hide their identities or start their own churches. Instead of mirroring Jesus, who loves every tongue, tribe, and nation, the church has simply gone with the flow of Nepal's caste-based discrimination. Many Nepali Christians were formerly Hindus, but still have Hindu hearts toward brothers and sisters in Christ. Ephesians 2:14 teaches that Jesus has made the Jews and Gentiles one, having broken down the dividing wall of hostility through the cross. Why then would we keep intact the dividing wall between non-delete and delete? I'm going to talk to you today about a few uh, a passage in James chapter two. We're going to read verses one through thirteen. But I want to ask you the reason that the reason I share that today is it's not emotional. Like, we're not born into a caste system here in America. So this story doesn't carry, it's powerful for us in that there's a shared humanity, but this is not exactly like anything that we experience in our country and culture and region. But we certainly have delete in our culture. They just don't go by that name. We have people that for us feel untouchable. Uh, And I would, we have that in our society, in our city, People that when we pass them on the street, we're like, Ugh. we have that even in our church. 
And it's, it's a little more subversive in our church. Like, we, you know, we look pretty similar in here, right? Like, we all look pretty similar. You can kind of look around. You're like, yeah, we kind of all, you know, look about the same. But there's people that are more comfortable for us or less comfortable for us. What about for you personally? Are there any people that you were raised to distrust a little bit or be suspicious of personally? Maybe it would be based on race. It could be based on economics. You know, uh, some of... Uh, some of the people that you may have been reared to be suspicious of could be poor people. I was actually raised to be more suspicious of really wealthy people in my family, to be honest, because we weren't a very wealthy family. So we were taught that um, the, like very wealthy people might be out to get you or they may be like not have your best interest at heart or they may just think that they're better than you. That was some of my upbringing. Those would be sort of the emotional delete of my uh, family. It may be geography. Um, it may be that you're suspicious of Southerners or Midwesterners, or I met some people from Wisconsin this week, and they have such a distinct accent. Look, even the person from Michigan is shaking her head at the idea of that Wisconsin accent, you know, and like, it's different. We can, we can be suspicious when we see somebody who's from a different place or has different traditions and customs than we do. Even this week of this funeral, I was sharing with the family different funeral traditions. It's amazing how if you go to Kentucky, the burial practices are different. Louisiana are different than South Carolina and are different than Massachusetts. And if you want to hear some funny stories later, I can tell you a couple of funny stories about burial practices in different parts of the country that I've seen and experienced. It could be that the delete in your life are people of privilege or people without privilege. We live in a world where that's something that we talk about a lot is who has privilege, who's the oppressed and who's the oppressor. It could be that a delete in your life is definitely the oppressor it could be that a delete in your life is the oppressed. I, you know, I don't know where you kind of come down in that. We all kind of come down in different places. It could be that a delete in our life is someone's sexuality, whether they're straight or straight-laced versus someone who maybe identifies in the LGBTQ plus camp or someone who's just promiscuous, like really, really promiscuous uh, so that could make you like, oh, I don't know about how I feel about that. It could be that the delete for you is someone's personality. Some of you are quiet. Some of you are really like, some of us are more loud. And we tend to suck out more of the air of the room. Last week, we talked about those 51% personalities that own at least half of the room anytime they walk into it. It could be you, you know, or soft or gruff or whatever. It could be a perceived lack of worth to us. In our society, this is the real delete for us as a culture in a lot of ways is people who don't have as much worth. This is who a lot of times culture is coming after, people who struggle with maybe mental challenges, emotional struggles, uh, people who are disabled, people who are troubled, people who are imbalanced. Uh, it could be that the delete are the addicted. It could be that the delete are the broken. It could be that the delete are the limited people who have a low ceiling in life. I don't know if when I say those things, if you run toward those things or if you run, um, or if you run away from the people who are seen as being ones who push at those people. I don't know. It's different for all of us. Like some people feel really comfortable in a room full of one type of person. And some people feel really uncomfortable in that exact same room. But can we all just for one moment confess this morning that there are some people that every one of us is more comfortable with than other people. Like as much as we wish we didn't have those biases and we didn't feel those ways, we all certainly do feel those ways. And even at church, do we intentionally or unintentionally have a culture and summer is always a nice time to talk about these things because it ends up being more of the core people. Do we have a culture that better welcomes families or influencers or the wealthy or New Englanders or townies or others? Or do we have a culture that welcomes everyone equally? And where we see that we have a culture that doesn't welcome everyone equally, we've got to call it for what it is and expose it and begin to address it as a church. And I'm thankful for the book of James. I'm thankful for this series, Untended Fires. The, it comes from the Gail McDonald quote where she says, untended fires 
uh, soon end up uh, in a pile of ashes. They burn out and they end up in a pile of ashes. And there are some things in our life that we need to let burn down. We'll see today if you are if you're reading in a paper Bible and you've got the little headings, this one's called the sin of partiality or favoritism. We need to let that burn out. We need to let that fire go, burn out. Other fires, though, in our faith, we need to stoke up. And if we don't keep things stoked up, they burn out. How many of you have recently, like in the last year, had a season where you kind of had something and maybe it was a relationship or your walk with Christ or something that you kind of let it you just let it be in neutral for a moment. And then you look up a few days or weeks later and you're like, dang, I don't love Christ like I did three months ago. Or, man, that relationship has grown distant. How many of you have a spot like that where you didn't stoke something up? We need to keep these important things, these primary things stoked up. And so today, let's read James 2, 1 through 13 together. And then we're going to talk about partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring walks into and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called the name of Jesus? Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Or if you show partiality, you're convicted as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. And if you commit adultery... If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. We're gonna, I'm going to sum it up again at the end, but let me just say that last part because it gets a little wordy and a little less tangible. What James is saying is if you say, oh, it's a sin to commit adultery, and you never commit adultery, but then you get angry at your neighbor, which Jesus says is crossing the threshold of heart murder, then you're equally guilty before God of breaking all of the law. If we sin at one point, but not at another point, but we sin at one point, we're guilty. And because we're all guilty, because we all sin at some spot, whether it's a heart adultery, heart murder, actual adultery, actual murder, or just showing favoritism or partiality, because we've all done some of these things, We've all broken some commandment of God's on our own in our hearts at the very least. Then we all need the law of freedom. We all need the mercy of God. We need to be a church that operates as a people who, yes, we have sinned. But yes, we have also been set free by the grace of Christ, the law of liberty. And then we've got to treat others moving forward as people who are free under that law of liberty. Broken people, sinful people, forgiven people, free people. So James starts this passage by saying, you must not show partiality. He says, show no favoritism. It's a mandate. This is an imperative verb. You have to do this. Show no favoritism. We cannot do it. He doesn't say, hey, guys, you ought to show no favoritism. Now, I know, Suresh, that you're an untouchable. And so in the caste system, like if James walked into the Nepali caste system, he wouldn't say, guys, I know this is your caste system. It would be nice if you would be nice to those untouchables. If he walked into that church, he would say, show no favoritism. The law of the gospel trumps the law of the Nepali caste system. 
If Jesus walked into a church in America, maybe in the deep south in the 1950s, and it's all white, and if an African-American family walked up to the door of the church to go and say, hey, can we come in? And the deacons of the church said, no, you are not welcome here. Jesus would dismantle that system and say, you must not do that. Everyone is welcome here, or you are not welcome in my family. If, a, if in Charlestown, if somebody who is living on the lower end of the economic spectrum walked into our church and they didn't look like us or smell like us or do life like us and we're like you're gonna have to sit over here in this other part of the room like we're gonna jesus would be so displeased by that that he would walk in and he would say you got to repent or take my name off of this there's a lot of churches on planet earth right now that have ceased to operate as churches and they've begun to operate as country clubs and it's just how our hearts are and that's not me being judgmental. Listen, I've got deletes in my own heart that I have to deal with. And last week, we talked about how God has to cut the sin of anger out of me and out of you. Today, we need to let Jesus burn down the fire of favoritism and cut out the sin of creating heart delete and ostracizing people or just not inviting people and just doing life in a way that says you do your thing over there we're going to do our thing over here we won't mess with you you don't mess with us and that's what was going on in for james and these this sin in these churches that he feels that he's got to like he's got to address this it's going on in a significant enough portion that the book of james look is the letter that he writes to these Christians is short and he's dealing with basically a column of material in an eight-column letter. This is a big deal. Like, this makes or breaks churches and I think that we don't treat it that, with such urgency. Like, we treat, oh, we gotta give. Oh, you gotta show up on Sunday. Oh, you gotta be known. Oh, you gotta do this. Oh, you got. We don't often say, look, we all have heart delete that we try to marginalize people and keep them on the edge and pretend like it's not our thing. And he says, you got to deal with it. So why? I'm going to give you three, and at the very end, a fourth reason why we cannot show favoritism. Number one, God does not choose favorites. God doesn't choose favorites. God doesn't choose favorites. God chooses the desperate. God doesn't choose favorites. God chooses desperate people. If you look at verse 5, he begins to talk about this idea that it's God who's choosing the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Favoritism dishonors the God, it dishonors the God who chooses nobodies. When we show favoritism, we're not dishonoring the person that we're marginalizing. We're dishonoring the Lord. That's why in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this. He's writing to the church at Corinth, which is the most messed up church maybe of all time. Fantastically messed up, like stand-up comedian stuff. These people are so messed up. And he says this. He says, For, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God chooses nothings and nobodies. A church that is not a church for nobodies it's worthless. It doesn't understand what God has plucked us from. I remember, uh, so I went into youth group. Youth group was seventh grade through 12th grade. I went to youth group in my church in like 1989. I would have gone into youth group. And, and the end of, at the end of the 80s, there was kind of a philosophy that had taken root among a lot of churches in America that if you reach the quarterback of the football team at your high school, and the captain of the cheerleading squad, then you could reach every teenager in, in your school. Like if you could, so a lot of ministries were really investing a lot of emotional energy in reaching the quarterback and the, and the head cheerleader. And as I remember, so I was in youth group from 1989 to about 1996. 
I go to college. I get my first job as a youth pastor. Now I'm working with those same teenagers, teenagers that I just was 10 years earlier. And I remember going to a conference in the year 2000, and a guy named Doug Fields, who was a very influential youth pastor in California, said, "Look, it used to be we tried to reach the captain of the we tried to reach the captain of the cheerleading squad." and the quarterback on the varsity football team. He said, now teenagers don't work that way anymore. They work by tribes. He said, so you still want to reach the quarterback. You still want to reach the head cheerleader, but you also want to reach the first chair in the band, you, like the drum major. You want to reach the, the valedictorian. You want to reach the head chess player on the ch like chess team, the Queen's Gambit. You want to reach like that part. Like essentially it was figure out what all the tribes are and go reach the leader of every one of those tribes and you will reach a school. Contrast that with what my friend Sean Sears says. Sean Sears is pastor of Grace Church Avon here in Massachusetts. And Sean said something to me a couple years ago. I'll never forget. He said, become the church for nobodies and you can be a church for everybody. That's a mantra. Become a church for nobodies, and you can become a church for everybody. Some churches are so bound up trying to become the church for the elite that they end up becoming a church for nobody. And we've got to be careful with that. God chooses the desperate. How many of you, you don't have to lift your hand right here, uh, but how many of you felt closest, uh, or, or even at the moment when you were born again, at a place of desperation, Maybe it was physical desperation. Howard, I think of you, came to Christ almost a year ago. It was this month, a year ago, that Howard nearly lost his life out on the run. And God, in the wake of that, in the immediate wake of that, immediate, like, radically saved Howard. Maybe it was a place of desperation with health. Maybe it was relational, a death of a loved one, or a breakup, or a relocation. Maybe it was spiritual. Maybe you sinned bad. You know how we sin, and then we sin bad? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you sinned bad. And out of that bad sin, you felt a desperation and an intimacy with the Lord that he met you at your broken spot. Maybe it was an emotional breakdown or a lonely or a low place. Maybe it was professional, financial. If we become the church for nobodies, people at their lowest spot will become a church for everybody because that's where God meets us. That's where God meets us. Second reason why not the show favorites that we see in the text is the true halves, the true halves of our, of our world and our culture, what James calls the rich. He calls them rich, but it's not just money. In a sense, he's not just talking about money here. The true halves of our culture, on the whole, don't care about the most sold out to Christ version of you. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, because that sounds a little weighty. In verses 6 and 7, James says, But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you to court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let me say, first of all, this is not always true. There are some times that people who hate Jesus are going to love you fiercely. But oftentimes, the halves of our culture the people who don't love the Lord, because Jesus says, you got to pick between God and stuff. You cannot, both of them cannot be king at once. You got to pick between me and stuff, right? So the people who their lifestyle says that they've opted for stuff on the whole will not care about the most sold out version of you. Now they'll love you. I have friends in Charlestown who love me fiercely, who don't love Christ and are extremely wealthy. We have friends, and you do too. Like, all of you have this. If you live in Boston, you have friends who, by the world's standards, are extremely wealthy and don't love Jesus. They really have at least one kind of roughly friend like that. Yes. They love you. And they may even love a watered-down religion, lukewarm faith um, version of you. Like a cultural Christian, like most of my atheist friends, don't, they don't care that I'm here today. They're cool with my faith as long as my faith stays right here and doesn't step into their space. 
The moment my faith steps into their space, because I'm all in with Christ, and Christ is going to be the most important thing. And you can always tell what's the most important thing by what we talk about. This week, the most important thing for me has been this really great podcast I found. It's a book that I've been reading, and I just finished last night a show on Netflix I've been watching for the last two weeks. Like, if you want to chat with me about what's important beyond Natalie, the boys, and the Red Sox, like, it would be this book, this podcast, and this show. And I've been into those things, and I will talk about them a lot. The moment you begin to take Christ into your world of friends who are, by rich, I don't mean money rich, but life rich and don't need the Lord, the moment you do that is going to be the moment that your friendship takes a turn. And James says, why are you so busy trying to cater to the people who are going to make your life and faith difficult because there's a conflicting value system. And this becomes the thing. An all-in, bold move, sold-out version of you will always be convicting to someone whose worldly wealth has caused them to reject Christ. And it's conflicting with the life that they want to have. Howard, I'm picking on Howard. This is the second time I'm mentioning him today, and I'll leave him alone after this. Howard tells me that before he met Christ, he chased after shiny things. And there wasn't margin in his life to truly know and pursue Christ because he was busy chasing other things. And James says the people who are chasing shiny things, who are the ones that Christians so quickly cater to and water down the gospel for, They're the ones who will dime you out so fast. James says, love the people who come with nothing because they're desperate. Desperate for Christ. Desperate for what God offers. David French has said, you're begging the world for its love. It will not love you back. If you want a quote today for the day, there you go. Often, churches and Christians are begging the world for its love. It will not love you back. Uh, Jesus says, even probably better to remember the quote from Jesus than the one from David French. You'll be hated by the world for my name's sake. (laughs) Jesus not pulling any punches. The world will hate you for my name's sake. So if our goal as a church is we want everybody to like us and we want all of Charlestown to think we're great and not offensive, it ain't gonna happen. For us to do that, we've got to sell out Christ in the gospel. And a lot of churches do. A lot of churches do. They sell it out and they decide we'd rather be liked and comfortable than truthful and have the pleasure of Christ. I I know our church well enough to know that at the end, when we shut the doors here for the last time, we say, God births the church. God gets to determine how long a church is going to live. We're not controlled that. If our church lives to be five years or a hundred years, when they shut the doors for the last time, I think we want to hear Jesus say, good job. Good job. You did it right. We need to operate from August 1st, 2021, with a mindset of when we close the doors for the last time, and I hope it outlives every one of us. I hope that our grandchildren who are not even born yet will one day worship in this church. And when God and his sovereignty decides the last day is here, it's done, close the doors, divest the mission, go do the Great Commission somewhere else, some other way. I hope that Jesus will look at Christ Church Charlottesville and say, good job. As long as you were here, you did it right. And how we do this today and who we love today determines whether or not we get to that day when Jesus looks. And even before that, I hope if Jesus walked in today and sat down right over here, because no one ever sits down over here. So the cameras are here and the tech is here and there's never human beings over here. So Jesus would sit over here so that I would be looking at him. Like, I hope that he would say, good job. You love me well but you loved each other well, and you love the least well, the delete of our city. Third reason why we have to reject favoritism is it's disobedience to the great commandment. It's equal to murder and adultery. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's um, one of Owen's stories that I love here in my Owen recount um, is the story of the golden calf where Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and he's up there a little too long, and God's people, who don't really have the most persevering of faith, 
Uh, they decide, ah, we don't know if Moses is going to come down. We don't know if God's really up there. And so they're like, Aaron, who is Moses' relative, and is when Moses is up on the mountain with God, Aaron is the proxy leader. They're like, Aaron, we need help. And so Aaron says, here's what I want you to do. Get all your gold nose rings, get all your gold earrings, get all your bling, your jewelry, your rings, toe rings, belly button rings, get all of it and bring it, put it in a fire. And they do, they melt all this gold down and they make a little golden calf. And Moses comes down from the mountain and loses his mind. Absolutely like comes completely unhinged and is like, how can you have done this? You've invited idolatry into the camp. God may kill us all now. What are you doing? We're in trouble. And Aaron goes, I didn't, I don't know how this happened. Like I took the gold earrings and belly button rings and toe rings and necklaces and we threw it into the fire and boop, out jumped a golden calf. And Moses, like, it's like today when somebody says, I don't know how my Twitter said that. My Twitter got hacked. It's like, your Twitter did not get hacked. It didn't happen. The calf did not jump out of the fire. It just did not happen. And so what does Moses do? He takes the little golden calf, he grinds it down into dust, and he makes the leaders of the nation drink it. Moses is not playing. This is idolatry against the living God. And James says that when we practice favoritism, it is idolatry against the living God. And sadly, too many churches and too many Christians have said, we don't know how it happened. We just threw it into the fire and poof, out jumped a golden calf. We don't know how this happened. We don't know how this favoritism got to where our church only looks like us and only smells like us and only votes like us and only thinks like us. We, don't, we just threw a thing into the fire. How did it get here? And we've got to repent of that because James says it's equal to murder and adultery. And we cannot let it sit in, sit in here in our church. So let me give you some bad news. The bad news is we all do these things, right? Have you done them? I've done them. I've done them. I've seen people who make me comfortable walk through those doors on a Sunday and people who make me uncomfortable walk right in, right beside them. And immediately I go to the ones who make me comfortable and I avoid temporarily the ones who are less comfortable. I've done it. I hope I'm not alone in that. And even if I hadn't sinned in that way, guess what? I've lied. I've heart murdered. I've heart adulterated. I've sinned. We all have, and we all need forgiveness. We are all, James says in the last few verses of his text, we are all equally guilty before a holy and righteous God. But here's the good news. Christ died to forgive our sins. He died to forgive our sin, all of it, and our sins of favoritism and to give us relationship with God. And we need to thank God that he gives us that without choosing favorites, because before a holy God, we are all morally delete. Before a holy God, we are all morally delete. So let me give you, I don't think we even have slides for this, some ways that you or we can avoid favoritism. If you're taking notes, you might scribble a couple of these out. One, repent of favoritism. Confess, Lord, I have chosen this person as a favorite, or this group as a favorite, or these people as a favorite, and I have ignored or shunned these people. Forgive me, Lord. Please forgive me. Acknowledge your tendencies. Acknowledge your biases as sin. And ask God for a changed heart as you look to the cross. Where you see favoritism in your heart, repent of it. Number two, pursue people, approach them, find common ground with them. Um, without diving too much into it, this week at the soccer nights, there was a family that was volunteering who were very clearly Bostonian. And there were some Bostonians also visiting and volunteering, but then there were some people not from Boston who were here helping run this camp. And this one family was standing alone by themselves, and I sat and watched it for 15 or 20 minutes. And finally, the Holy Spirit said, let's get over there and talk to them. And they were a delightful family, but they were not a Christian family, not even close. Like, it became really obvious that they probably didn't know Christ. I had a great time talking with them. It was one of those moments where I actually didn't get it wrong. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit pushed me over to them, and I had a great time talking with them. If you struggle with the sin of favoritism, pursue people, 
approach them. I think this is where churches begin to slide away into the sin of favoritism, is we wait for people to approach us, approach them, find common ground. And you may, probably not you guys, because you're all really good Christians, really people who love Jesus. Some of us might say, well, what about their sin? What about their obvious outward sin? What do I do with that? One of my favorite life quotes is that it's God's job to judge. It's the Spirit's job to convict. It's your job to love. It's God's job to judge. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's my job to love. Now, we have to be wise in some of that. We have to be wise in some of that. We can talk about the little nuances to that. Like we don't, we love people who are, struggle with all kinds of sins and struggles, but we don't necessarily go running into every environment equally in the same way. We have to make reason through it, but 99% of the time, we just need to approach people in love like Jesus would. Number three, how to avoid favoritism. Build a diverse squad of brothers and sisters. Build a diverse squad. Think about Jesus' team. Here's Jesus, a carpenter. A third of his 12 disciples are fishermen. One of them is essentially an IRS agent. And another one of them is a nationalistic terrorist, a, a domestic terrorist trying to kill the Roman occupiers in the land. That's his squad. Some of them are old, some of them are young, some of them are loud, some of them are quiet, some of them are really religious, some of them swear all the time. Like, biblically, they're caught swearing in the Bible. Like, you know you struggle with swearing when your story is in the Bible and you're swearing in the Bible. Like, but that's Peter. That's him swearing all the time, like, and that's Jesus' squad. And the book of Luke even tells us that it was women who were following who weren't listed among the 12, but who were financing the ministry. And so Jesus didn't just pick just 12 guys who all look the same, like the famous painting of them sitting around the table, only sitting on one side of the table. Like, Jesus' team is really diverse, and Jesus' team is occupationally diverse, racially diverse, age diverse, and even his team is even diverse in terms of gender and who's with him. Jesus had a diverse squad. Introduce yourself on Sundays. Sit on a row with uh, people. Learn the names of people who are really different from you. As we roll into September and more people begin to come back, some of whom you will have never known, uh, make sure to get to know them. And don't always sit in the same spot. Some of you, I watch to see where you're going to sit every Sunday. I love it. Like Howard, he's kind of, this is Howard's zone. Could be over here. Ed's zone's right here. It could be right over here sometimes. Like you, some of you have a seat. You're going to sit in your spot every Sunday. But I like watching you move. As the room fills up more, it may be better to pick your seat at the end. What you definitely don't want is to have a bronze little plate with your name on it on a seat. And I've seen that. many. This is the so-and-so family seat. You don't want that. Like to reject favoritism is to pick strategically who you're going to talk with and follow up with. And you might say, but dude, I'm new. Miles and Jessica could be like, we're new. How are we supposed to know these people? Listen, our church is four. Our neighborhood is 393. When you look at it that way, we're all new. Like in a neighborhood that's almost 400 years old, a four-year-old church is still new. We're all new. And so put yourself out there if this is your church. Number four, how to avoid favoritism. Go smaller. Go smaller. Uh, Andy Stanley, I believe, says as churches grow larger, they also have to grow smaller. It's easier to avoid favoritism in smaller settings. Go smaller as the church gets bigger. In other words, serve on Sundays. Find a way to serve. Maybe you need to help with the first impressions team. Maybe you need to help with kids. The more you have opportunity to interact in groups of five and six, the better. You need to be in a small group, and your small group doesn't need to just be people like you. Groups will launch again September 20th. Be in a small group and invite people into your group and into your team who are different than you. And number five, how do you avoid favoritism? Pray. Man, we just pray, God, help us do this. This is grace work. This is spirit work. We pray as a church. We exhibit that we will not pick favorites. We serve in a way that says we don't pick favorites. We will give our money away as a church in a way that says we will not pick favorites. I remember somebody telling me early on, they said, who lives in Charlestown? I was like, well, Charlestown's kind of, you know, there's some townies. 
There's some toonies. There's people like me, yuppies, not from here. And then there's some people like who live in income-adjusted housing who are sort of geographically pushed into one part of a neighborhood and sometimes can almost be invisible to those two groups. And the guy said, well, which one's your church going to be for? I said, it's going to be for all three. He was like, oh, you can't do that. You have to be for townies or toonies or people who live in income-adjusted housing. I was like, then we're not doing it. He goes, your church is not going to work. I was like, okay, then we'll go down swinging. But we're not going to pick one group of neighbors to the exclusion of two groups of neighbors. That's not gospel. So we're going to spend our money. We're going to spend our energy. We're going to spend our relational capital trying to serve everybody in this neighborhood. And if everybody's not welcome in this church, then I'm not welcome in this church. And you don't want to be part of it either. Shut the thing down and let's go home. Favoritism is our natural bent. We constantly have to put it to death individually and corporately. Let me give you one last reason and we'll pray. One last reason to reject favoritism. Rejecting favoritism identifies us with Christ. If you pick a favorite, you miss Christ every time. If you pick favorites, you miss Christ every time. Let me read to you Isaiah 53, 2 through 5. There's one phrase in here the Lord brought to my attention this week. For he grew up, he's talking about Jesus, 700 years before Jesus. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we would look at him. There was nothing about Jesus that we would see. He would be invisible to us if we pick favorites every single time. There was no beauty that we would desire him. In other words, Jesus would be the last pick on the kickball team, the one who would sit in the corner that no one would want, the one that nobody would even know if he wasn't, that he was or wasn't there. He would have been there the whole time. He was despised, he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, though, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. If we play favorites, we will never pick Jesus. That for me was like game, set, match. When I read that this week, it was like game, set, match. If we pick favorites, we will never pick Christ. We will miss him every time. He came like a delete. He was born in a cave and no one noticed. 30 years ago, we don't even get, we get one story from the next 30 years of his life. And then he was rejected by people killed by people so quick that his life was just snuffed out. Uh, Easy to reject, easier to miss, yet he is our salvation. So I want to encourage you to burn down favoritism. If you have areas of favoritism, let them burn out. Don't tend those fires. In fact, confess those fires to others and let them burn out. And then stoke up, and this is the best part of his sermon. Because in Boston, one thing that has happened to me living here that I never answered. In the South, you look everybody in the eye. Hey, Miguel, how you doing, man? You just, it's like, it could be like a total stranger. Hey, how you doing, stranger? Like you do that. You, know, like you walk down the street in the South and you acknowledge everybody. Everybody. Here, you don't do it. Like, you just kind of, you're just walking. You guys do this? Anybody do this? You pull out your phone. You, you're not even on your phone. You just got your phone out in a crowd so you don't have to acknowledge people right? If somebody, if I'm walking down the street and somebody acknowledges me, they fall into one of two categories. Ed, tell me if if this is at all true for you. Either A, they're from the South, or B, I'm afraid they have a friend who's about to jump out and rob me. Like, that's who acknowledges my eyes. It's like Southerners, crazy people, and people who might try to beat me up. Living in Boston. I want to challenge you this week, not to be the weirdo who makes perpetual eye contact, but when you do look at people this week, I want you to see Jesus in them and say, this is someone for whom Christ died. This person who's got the heroin lean down at the Charlestown Mall, Christ died for him. This woman who clearly is struggling in her sin, she is an image bearer. This guy who can't hold a job for anything, 
is not taking care of his family, made the image of God. This person who loves religion but wouldn't know Jesus if he punched him in the face, Christ laid down his life. This kid who is foul-mouthed, isn't even old enough to know these words, and is saying them in a way that could make just, you know, just all of us blush, Christ died for him. Don't play favoritism. In fact, stoke up a willingness to look at people and see them as image bearers of God for whom Christ came and died. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, I confess the favoritism that's in my heart. Some of it was kind of generationally passed along to me, this suspicion of people who are haves, fearing that they're going to take something from our family or they would just reject us because we don't have what they have, Lord. Lord, I, I know that that doesn't sit on the surface quite like it used to, but it still sits down in there. And Lord, I'm sorry. Uh, I want to continue to turn from that. Lord, even more, I, can, I confess to you uh, biases in my heart against people who aren't like me. It could be the militant atheist. It could be, uh, Lord, the person who is struggling with mental illness and then, uh, and then compounds that by taking on other life struggles that then they blame their things, but they don't acknowledge their mental illness. God, I, I struggle with that. Lord, I struggle, honestly, you know my heart. I struggle with, uh, at, like, with seeing single moms in this neighborhood, raising kids and dads who uh, just aren't there. Lord, I struggle not judging those fathers. Lord, we go on and on. We'd be here all day talking about who I can tend to show favoritism to. We could stand up one by one, Lord, and out loud repent of the sins of favoritism. Who are the delete in our heart? I think we all have them. Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would root them out, that you would cut them out. Help us to see them as golden calf idolatry, like adultery and murder. Lord, we repent. Lord, for anybody in the room or anybody who's watching online who's never given their life to you, their greatest problem is not their favoritism. Their greatest problem is their sin, and their favoritism is a reflection of their sin. I pray that they would confess their sin, singular, one thing, all of it, and trust the work of Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross so that we can have forgiveness, even for our favoritism and partiality. We can have relationship with you. Hey, God, if anything sticks for me from this, I pray it sticks for my friends, my faith family here in the room. Lord, it's the idea that if we pick favorites, we'll never find you. Lord, we love you. Jesus, we want to see you. And this week, I pray that we would see you in the least of these. Whoever the least of these are for all of us, I pray that we would see you in the least of these this week. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.